Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it and the power of it. We thank you that it has not changed and it's not going to change. And so we come to it to, to be taught and to be fed. We come to it to be corrected and rebuked where we're wrong. And Lord, uh, we come to be equipped for righteousness sake. So have mercy on us this morning. Grant us eyes that see and ears that hear for your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'll invite you to turn to Matthew 24 if you're not already there. Uh, this is the, the first proffer sermon in the Olivet Discourse. Last week was kind of an introduction and a little bit of a review of the discourse as a whole. Uh, Jesus gave two great discourses, two great teachings in the final week of his life. This is Wednesday of Passion Week when he's delivering this. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's been in Jerusalem a good part of the day teaching for quite a few chapters in Matthew. Uh, chapter 26 says he's going to eat supper at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, which is east of Jerusalem a few miles. So they're on their way. I imagine that they've stopped for a break when his disciples ask him the question that prompts these two chapters. The other great discourse is the upper room discourse. That takes place Thursday night after the Last Supper, after Judas has departed. Judas hears all of these words. Jesus answered, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, I guess we should think about their question, verse 3. Now, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? As I explained last week, verse 36 says the end of, is none of our business. That's for the Father to know. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for these things must take place but that is not yet the end for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Our world is fascinated with the idea of the end of time. Countless movies talk about the end of the world. Uh, we've been warned that overpopulation is going to end the world, that the climate change is going to end the world. Uh, some of us are old enough to remember the Cold War and nuclear proliferation and the loss of the ozone layer. And there's always something that, that catches people's attention. Ironically, history shows us that governments are able to easily control their populations if they can uh, convince them that one enemy or another is out to get them. Uh, so fear is used to exploit the people, to make people vulnerable to deception, we saw it with Nazi Germany. We saw it with communism in the last century. It's happened probably since Cain killed Abel, that people have used that. Well, the Bible tells us that this age, this present evil age, Galatians says, is going to come to an end. It's not going to come to the end that's predicted by secular prophets of doom with melting ice caps and global warming. I'm sorry, global boiling. Now we're at global boiling it's going to be by God's judgment against the world because he brings things to an end. 
So Matthew 24 opens, as we saw, with Jesus' disciples asking him, what signs can we expect when you come and when the end is going to come? Chapters 24 and 25 focus on, in part on those signs, on the spiritual chaos that's going to come at the end, on the, the violence from men and the judgment from God. But as I said last week, half of these chapters is focused on Christians being ready. Jesus repeats this theme over and over again. And that's where he begins. Jesus doesn't dive into answering what are the signs by saying, here are the signs. Jesus' first statements to them are, see to it that you're not deceived and see to it that you're not alarmed. Before he goes any further, he wants them to understand that their faith and stability and our faith and stability re require some things from us. We see in our own time that deception and fear go hand in hand. Fearful people are the most easily deceived because they're in a state of panic. Deceived people are the most easily frightened because they have no way of determining what's true. And so in a sense, Jesus saying, see to it that you are not deceived, see that you are not alarmed, is Jesus saying, see to it that you keep your head. See to it that you keep your senses about you. So he begins with deception. See to it that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and will deceive many. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, don't be deceived. That's passive. He says, see to it that you're not deceived. You take responsibility for protecting yourself against deception. Now, I hate to give hard truths. I want to give easy truths. I understand, in a sense, in a sense, I understand the false prophets of the Old Testament who didn't want to speak bad things. But the truth is, John says in 2 John 7, verse 7, written five or six decades after these words, many deceivers have gone out into the world. That was still in the first century. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Dare we think that there are now no deceivers in the world or that deceivers in the world are few and far between? Deception is simply part of our world. It's foolish to ask if there are deceivers in our world. The sensible question is, who are the deceivers in our world? It's not hard to recognize deception. All we have to do is compare what somebody says with Scripture. If you have a Bible, if you understand it, that's actually relatively easy. I don't mean that people are eager to understand deception, but it's relatively easy. But John doesn't say many deceptions have gone out. He points to people, and he says many deceivers have gone out. And that's the trouble that many of us have. Deceivers can be lovely people. They can be nice people. They're well-intentioned. They're sincere. They can even be praiseworthy. We understand that most deceivers have been deceived. And there's an element of niceness and mercy within us that says it's not, it's not completely their fault. But what Jesus seems to say here is it's completely their fault. He says to you and I, see, that, see to it that you're not deceived because ultimately it's a sin to allow other people to deceive us about what God has said. God has been clear. We have no excuse what makes it hard for us is that deceivers can be people that we like and respect 
and love. They're normal people. They look normal. Their eyes don't glow red. They don't have horns sticking out of their heads. They don't speak in growly, demonic voices. But all deceivers proclaim the doctrines of demons. So Paul writes, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the truth, from, from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. All deception begins with Satan. Lies are his primary weapon. Satan, uh, Jesus calls him the father of lies in John 8. Satan repeatedly lied to Jesus during the Lord's temptation, even using scripture at one point to try and deceive him. And I wonder if you've considered this. Satan stood in heaven before the throne of God, looked God in the face, and lied to him. In Job 1 and Job 2, he says to God, you touch him and he'll curse you to your face. And that was a lie. Satan's deception is so much a part of who he is that even when he's standing in front of truth itself, he insists on his lie. He is such an accomplished liar that after the millennium, remember at the beginning of the millennium, an angel from heaven with a great chain will seize the devil, bind him, cast him into the pit, seal the pit, or close the pit, and seal it, five verbs, so that he can't deceive the nations for a thousand years. He'll be released at the end of that thousand years. And he is such a convincing deceiver that he will persuade a vast number of people, listen now, that the world was a better place with him in it. You've needed me. And he'll persuade them to go to war against Jesus in Jerusalem and fire will come down out, out of heaven. Satan is a convincing deceiver. And the end times are ripe for deception. Jesus says that. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. False Christs abound in various religions. False prophets and teachers and apostles abound in what's called Christianity. They can even be people we know and people that we love and people that we care about. And that makes rejecting them and their teachings very hard for us. If it helps, remember this. The only hope a false teacher, prophet, or apostle has is that a genuine Christian who loves them will look them in the eye and tell them the truth. That's the only hope they have because they're trapped in that deception. So how do we see to it that we're not deceived? I'm, I'm going to give you three things. First, we have to believe that Jesus tells us that the end times are going to be spiritually chaotic. That is, there's going to be deception everywhere. Deception is not going to be the deception, is not going to be the exception. It's going to be the rule. You can find deceptions everywhere. Many are going to claim to be Christ. By the way, I've met Jesus. I, I met him at the Madison County Jail. Man stood, sat at that table, looked me in the eye and said, I'm Jesus. And I said, nope, you're not. And he said, I am. And I said, show me your hands. No crucifixion marks. You're not him. I am. No, you're not. If only the other false Christs were that easy to recognize. Beyond false Christs, there are those who claim to speak for him. False teachers and prophets, 
and apostles. And their goal, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, is to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Which means they're targeting us. They're not targeting unbelievers. They're targeting us. There are, there are I think, I can't, I've not done the test, I've not done the poll. My heart tells me that there's more false teachers within what's called Christianity than true teachers. And I'm sorry to put it this way, but we have to be suspicious of everything. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5 says, uh, 5.21 says, examine all things and hold fast to that which is good. You want to honor me as your pastor and your teacher? Test everything that I say. And when I say test everything that I would say, I even mean test when I tell you to test what I say. Don't take my word for anything. What a fool you would be to do that. Go to the word of God. Go to scripture. So first, we need to believe Jesus when he tells us that the end times are going to be a time of spiritual chaos. Second, we need to immerse ourselves in scripture. It is truth. It is not going to change. It is not going to, to move. So we need to know it. We need to be willing to test everything by it. And when somebody says to us, oh, take my word for it. No, I'll take scripture for it. Show me scripture. Show me your thinking. Show me your reasoning. I'm willing to be taught. But you're going to have to come at me with the word of God and not with anything else. And then besides knowing the word, we have to know how to think biblically. We need to know how to take the whole of scripture and, and apply it in a godly, creative way to every circumstance that we face. So this, this man who claimed to be Jesus, this man who claimed to be Jesus, I took the fact that when Jesus rose from the dead and he came to his disciples and they said, well, this is a ghost, he said, no, look, you can see. That's the first test. I simply thought creatively from a biblical point of view. Some are going to say, but I have the Spirit, so I don't need the Scriptures. No, you do need the Scriptures because the Spirit's not going to give you new revelation. He's going to explain the Word to you. If you're in the Word, you give the, the Holy Spirit the, the fuel to work with to teach you. But if you're not in the word, you're just hoping. God has mercy on us even in those situations, but we have to be in the word. And then third, having been warned by Jesus of the chaos to come, having been given his word, we have to stand on what he says and simply reject what contradicts it. Somebody else is going to generally see some things differently. There are things that are called doubtful things in Scripture. Paul deals with that. There, there's some over here who say you should never eat meat offered to an idol because it's been used in worship. And there's somebody over here who says, but an idol is nothing. It's, it, it's a non-existent thing. It's a figment of the imagination. An idol is not another kind of God. It's a, it's a fake. And Paul says to those two guys, this is my paraphrase of Romans. Paul says, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you do. You don't want to eat, don't eat it. But don't judge those who do. And if you want to eat it, eat it. I don't care. But don't belittle those who don't. Let each one be convinced by scripture. That's where we stand on the word of God. 
So we need to see to it that we are not deceived. That means taking personal responsibility. The Lord doesn't say, listen to your pastor so that you're not deceived. He says, you see to it. You see to it. The second, he says, see to it that you are not alarmed. Verse 6, and you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. It's the same kind of phrase. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. He says, see to it that you're not afraid. For these things must take place, those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. We are responsible for our our own stability and peace of mind. And many of you remember Y2K. Many of you remember Y2K. Way back in the day, somebody decided computers only needed to use two digits for the year. No big deal. And then as the 90s progressed, somebody said, hey, wait a second. When the clock turns over, my computer's not going to think it's January 1st. 2000, it's going to think it's January 1st, 1900. And on a personal computer, it probably doesn't matter. I mean, really, that much. But in business, banking, military, government, there's all kinds of things where that's crucial. That's crucial. So they began changing computers. For personal computers, it wasn't a big deal. You just download an update and it's done. But for most major systems, they had to be changed by hand because they're all customized. And people were unsure about how, uh, how well that would work. So a woman in our church in California in the fall of 1999 announced that she was saving plastic milk jugs for water in case we, we didn't have water. And I thought, that's, that's good thinking. Uh, we lived in a, in a kind of a private community that had a management leader and all that so I went and talked to this guy and I just said tell me about our water how do I know that when we click over we'll still have water and I won't bore you with all the details that he shared ultimately our water was gravity fed and we would have enough for 18 weeks oh great awesome thanks for your time so I go to this woman and say I went and talked to this guy and uh we have 18 weeks of water gravity fed. So it's, it's, it's not an issue. We don't have to worry about pumps going out, in other words. And she said, well, I'm saving water just in case. And I said, but Y2K is not going to cancel gravity. She said, and I'm quoting, well, you never know. <laughs> and I said, no, I know. I know, because I remember that there was gravity before there was computers. (laughs) I remember that. Fear makes people deceivable. And she simply wasn't willing to think with, with stability. She let the fear dominate her life. Now, one of the hard truths of the Olivet Discourse is that this world is filled with danger now. And it's only going to increase as time goes on. That's simply true. Jesus describes them. There's going to be wars. Uh, According to the best information I can find over the last 3,400 years, there's only been about 250 years where there's no recorded wars. 
There's going to be rumors of wars. Rumors are always worse because your imagination takes off. He says, nation will rise against nation. That is ethnos against ethnos. That, that isn't just political groups. That's ethnic groups. We see that in the United States with different people groups in the United States, some based on race, some based on political ideas, warring with each other. Kingdom will, will rise against kingdom. That is countries in warfare. He says there will be famines in various places. I learned something every week. I learned this week that the number one cause of famine in history is war. It's not weather. It's not disease. It's not uh, uh, insects. It's war. See, war destroys crops, and it destroys croplands, and it displaces people so they can't raise food, and they can't get food brought to them. And armies going through will steal or confiscate food so that people are hungry. And then there's earthquakes. Then there's natural disasters taking place, probably is the outcome and the, the, the long-term result of the great flood as the world continues to respond to that. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, see to it that you're not alarmed. How do you live without fear? How do you live without alarm in that? Well, I think he tells us in verse 6. First of all, these things must take place. So he points us to the sovereignty of God. When he says these things must take place, he doesn't mean that God is powerless against them. They have to take place because God, there's just nothing he can do except try and keep us alive. God's at the mercy of, of all these things. He says they must take place because God, who is sovereign, has decreed every one of those things for his glory over time. I don't need to remind you that Yahweh is the creator of all things. That makes him the rightful owner of all things and gives him authority over all things so that he can do what he wishes with stars, planets, angels, demons, and human beings. Most unbelievers and many Christians will say, well, God can't rule over me. Well, he does. He is right now. He is ruling over you right now. Wisdom submits to that rule. Foolishness resists, but he is ruling. But for our purposes with this, God's sovereign control means that while we face unpleasant times we don't face uncertain times we face unpleasant times as we move on through these two chapters it's just going to get worse and that's unpleasant but it's not uncertain because Jesus has told us ahead of time so that those things those sorts of things don't don't surprise us I don't know what the next hour holds for you, but Yahweh does. It will turn out for his glory, and if you've trusted in his son, it will turn out for your good. So the first thing that we need to do is trust in the sovereignty of God. The second is we need to trust in the power of God. Jesus says in verse 6, this is not yet the end. In verse 8, these are just the beginning of birth pains. We need to trust in the power of God. Those events are not going to get out of his control. He's going to govern every last millisecond exactly as he wishes. We don't know God's timetable. Jesus could come back before we're done this morning. It might not be a thousand years. Our faith is not in the calendar. 
but in the God who has set a timetable in eternity past and who is carrying it out perfectly. Now, I'll be honest with you. I would love to have uh, full disclosure about the end times, although the world couldn't hold the books, but I would love full disclosure about the end times. I don't have full disclosure, but what we have in scripture is sufficient disclosure. We have adequate disclosure. We know enough to trust in the Lord and to follow him well. Jesus says in verse 25, behold, I have told you in advance. I've mentioned the upper room discourse, the other great discourse of this last week. Jesus says twice there, John 14, 29, I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. And then in 16.4, these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. He, he, he goes way out of his way to say, I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm telling you ahead of time. Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. Don't be deceived. The details are in the hands of God. And so we'll, while we place uncertain times, or I'm sorry, while we pl- face unpleasant times, we don't face uncertain times. Jesus emphasizes that this is not the end in verse 6, that these are merely the beginning of birth birth pains in verse 8. We're tempted to look at the state of our world today. I certainly am and say this has got to be the end. We've got to be getting close. No, it could get a lot worse. It could be a lot worse than it is. I hope it's not. But here's the thing. The, The events of the end times are not just more of the same There's a marked change in what takes place. There's an old African proverb that says, if you hear a hyena growling in the brush, you might think it's a lion, but if you hear a lion growling in the brush, you'll never think it's a hyena. (laughs) So when the end times come, when those events take place, Christians will say, oh, this is not like anything that's happened before. This is not merely labor, Jesus talks about birth pains. This isn't merely labor. This is now birth. Now, there's billions of people in the world, and Linda and I have only produced three. So I have a limited knowledge of how these things work, but my understanding is that labor is always like this, and the actual birth process is like that. Well, I don't mean seconds. So a season of tribulations, well, I mean, there, there are women who go through 24 hours of labor, but that's not that moment of birth. So a season of tribulation is coming that is going to make today look like heaven on earth. Verse 21, Jesus says there is going to be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now and will not after, will not occur after. By the way, what that says is that the great tribulation doesn't come at the very end of time because then there would be no after to worry about. Is all this supposed to make us feel better? Yeah. Well, first of all, we're assured that when God's judgment falls, it's going to be unmistakable, not just more of the same. 
The judgment of the earth that we see take place in Revelation 6 to 19 and those chapters is not just going to be what's taken place. It's a different quality of judgment than anything that's been witnessed on earth. The only thing in scripture that compares to it is the great flood, and that's just a foreshadowing. And so if we wake up tomorrow morning to find out that Russia has declared war on the United States, it's not the end. It's just more of the same. And second, the Lord has graciously told us in advance what sorts of things are going to happen. We have the opportunity to be prepared for what this season brings and the birth pains that precede the great tribulation. In Genesis 6, God gave man 120 years to repent while Noah preached righteousness and repentance and built the ark. The church has been preaching righteousness and repentance for 2,000 years while Jesus prepares our place. And I think that we could make the argument that Jesus is our ark. That as Noah and his family were placed in the ark and then lifted above the judgment by the flood, that the church will be removed and lifted above the judgment that's to come. As we bring this home then, we've been given the word of God. If we trust it and know it, then the deceivers are going to have a hard time fooling us. And if they catch our ear, it'll just be for a brief time. The word has told us what's going to take place in the future. We don't know every last detail, but we know enough to be protected from alarm. And we don't have full disclosure, but we do have adequate disclosure. So our job as Christians is to continue day by day in faith. If you don't know Christ, all of this is going to come upon you like the flood. And so if you hear his voice, today is the day. I had such a wonderful experience Thursday night at the jail. Pray for Christian. Pray for Christian. Christian has been in Thursday night Bible studies of mine at the jail for months. He's been real happy and glad, and boy, I believe, and I know this, and I know that, and I hear that. There are some guys who are really combative, and there are some guys who just, they just know everything, and they're just there. I was teaching in John 5, and there's a point where Jesus comes to the man at the pool, and he says, do you wish to be made well? And the man says, well, I don't have anybody to put me in, and then somebody else gets in before I do. And, and I just kind of turned that evangelistically. And I said, there are people, we come to them and we say, do, we want, do you want to be forgiven? And they say, well, it's not my fault. It was my mom. It was my dad. It was my friends and my circumstances. And there's no hope. They need to say, that's my sin. Yes, I want to be forgiven. I want to be made clean. And I looked over at Christian and he, he, he just, it, it looked like a stunned ox. And I just, I just looked at him, and he said, this is me. This is me today. And he said, you're talking right to me. And I said, well, somebody's talking right to you. Pray for him. For the first time maybe in his life, he's had the understanding that he just can't glad hand God. That the Savior died for him. That his sins are being brought to bear. Earlier on, I had talked about Jesus dying, and he says, oh, he loves all of us. As though then every, every individual will be okay because he loves all of us. The question is, did he die for you? Do you believe that? 
And if you believe in Christ, we face unpleasant times, but not uncertain times. We have his protection against deception. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. We do lift up Christian and ask that you would confirm his salvation. And Lord, if he has not yet come to faith in you, if you have not yet brought him, would you continue to do that until he has come all the way home? I, I lift myself up and each one of us here. Our times can be frightening and confusing. Our confusion leads us to look for answers that leave us open to deception. And so would you secure us in your word? And would you allow us to trust that you have the unknown in your hand? And while we may not know what's going to happen from moment to moment, you've decreed moment to moment. And we can trust you with that information. We thank you for your love for us today. In Jesus' name we pray.